Hi, this is Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of A to Z of Detoxing, the ultimate guide to reducing our toxic exposures, and host of this Practical Non-Toxic Living podcast. Welcome. This podcast episode was inspired by Lung Cancer Awareness Month. My friend Rena Hans, who is also the guest of this podcast, has taught me that lung cancer is not just a smoker's outcome. If you have lungs, then you should be aware that lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death worldwide. It takes twice as many women's lives as breast cancer and twice as many lives as prostate cancer. People who have never smoked account for 20,000 to 30,000 lung cancer diagnoses each year. And this year, nearly 229,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer. Despite being the leading cause of cancer mortality, lung cancer receives far less research funding than any other cancer. That's why funding from non-governmental organizations is so critical. The Lung Cancer Research Foundation plays a pivotal role in funding scientific discoveries that may lead to improved lung cancer outcomes. My friend Rena Hans joined the Lung Cancer Research Foundation Board of Directors in November 2018. Why? Well, that's what this podcast is about. Rena's mother died of lung cancer at the young age of 53. So as Rena approached her 50th birthday in 2018, she had a strong feeling that she should get tested and get a baseline CT scan. Since Rena had no symptoms and was not a smoker, it was a surprise that the CT scan revealed a tumor in her lung. After undergoing a lobectomy, Rena is now cancer-free. Rena believes that early detection was invaluable for her lung cancer diagnosis and joined the Lung Cancer Research Foundation to help spread awareness and raise money for lung cancer research. Again, if you have lungs, then this podcast is relevant to you, even if you're young, healthy, and a non-smoker. You'll understand more after listening to Rena's story. In addition to spreading awareness of lung cancer and how invaluable early detection can be, I want to emphasize that indoor air tends to be at least two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, even in the most industrialized cities. What we buy, own, and do contribute greatly to this indoor pollution. While this can be upsetting, it is also empowering because we can influence our indoor environments. While there's a lot that we cannot change easily, there's also a lot that we can improve with practical tips. And I created a workbook called Home Detox Workbook, Checklists to Eliminate Toxic Chemicals to Make It Even Easier for You. It will help you detox your indoor air, dust, hands, water, and sleep areas. You can find it worldwide on your country's Amazon website. Now, before you start listening to the podcast, I want to emphasize that while Rena and I talk about health and medicine, Please do not interpret any part of our conversation as medical advice. Rena and I are sharing her story so that you can consider conversations that you may want to have with your healthcare providers. Now on with my conversation with Rena, which we recorded with members of my online detox academy on Zoom from my home office in November 2019. And special thanks to my podcast producer, Chris Robertson, for elevating this listening experience. We hope this podcast helps you or someone you know. 
Serena and I are good friends from our children's school. Mm -hmm. We have two beautiful kids, and your story is one I think is so important more people know about. I know you as a very health conscious person. Mm -hmm. When I first met you, I just remember you holding a cold pressed green juice yes. in your yeah. workout gear. Yes. So why don't you tell us more about your background and whether you had risk factors for lung cancer and mm -hmm. how you came to feel like you should get tested. Okay. My background is my, I had a mother and grandmother that both died of cancer in their fifties. So my, my mother died at 53 of lung cancer. So I guess that was genetically maybe in my background, even though she was a smoker. And my grandmother had breast cancer at 57, but it was postmenopausal, which I think they say was not hereditary. I, as you know, I did dabble in smoking in college, like I think a lot of us did back in the day. Not a lot of us, but some of us, I should say. And, you know, after my mom having cancer, it was definitely not something I was going to ever continue with. And it was never a big thing for me. Um, I got really into running when I was about 22, I think. And that's kind of the start of my athletic. I was a dancer when I was younger. And I really started getting into athletics and taking care of myself. And my dad has always been one of those people that were feeding us wheat germ as little kids. And then it was garlic pills and, you know, whatever it was, like the new phase of health. He always had us buying into it. So it was Your definitely- dad is really health conscious. Very health conscious. He, you've met my dad. He's yeah. 80 and he looks like he's about 50. And he still does yoga with me. He's very health conscious. So I'm always reading books on new ways to keep your body clean. And I do my annual cleanses or biannual cleanses and all that kind of healthy stuff, especially living in New York, trying to balance the- kind of the crazy lives that we have here. However, as I was approaching my 50s, a lot of people get very excited about celebrating their 50th birthday. And excited is one emotion. Mixed <laughs> <laughs> emotion. And well, a lot, I definitely had a lot of friends who were very excited about their 50th birthdays. And they kept saying, are you going to have a party? You have to have a party. Oh my God, it's such a great birthday milestone. And I said, you know, it's very odd, but my mom and my grandmother, and not to be dark, but they both died in their 50s, and a reality hit me, and I thought, well, if I have those, their genes, I could have a very challenging decade. So I also do love a medical test, though. So when I, <laughs> I've always been one of those people that if there's a new medical test that could give you any sort of information about your anything, your genetic makeup, your possibilities of catching something, you know, I would ask the doctor for it. Like I asked for a blood test that's, I think it's called CA-125. It is a simple blood test that I make my OBGYN give me that is a marker for ovarian cancer because I lost a friend to ovarian cancer at a very young age and she had very young children. And, you know, it's a very, um, volatile test. There's a lot of like false positives. false positives and they don't like to give it, but I always wanted to be given that test. And my OBGYN was also a big believer in some med in medical tests. So he would let me have them. And of course, one time it came back and it was high. And so that I had to go back every six months and get one and it progressively went down. So it never turned into anything, but I thought, you know, my mom had, my grandmother had breast cancer. It's tied to ovarian cancer. 
I didn't have the BRCA gene. I did test for that. <laughs> I did test for a lot of things. But I, I just have been surrounded by a lot of cancer. As you know, we have a mutual friend that's a person that has childhood cancer. Um, so I definitely felt cancer was in my world for some reason. I don't know why. But well, it's just, more prevalent than ever. Yes, I think so. And I think, you know, we literally know three people that spend time at Memorial Sloan Kettering. So I think I, I mean, I've been in and out of that hospital giving blood, donating blood for a friend of mine that had lymphoma. So it is, yeah, something that was in my kind of back of my mind. And as you know, we have advertisements on the back of our bus stop signs. And I kept seeing these public service announcements that kept saying, if you've ever smoked or been exposed to secondhand smoke, ask your doctor about the new lung cancer screening. But as you know, it's not really a new screening, as I've told you, it's just a low grade CT scan, which is really such an amazing test. I know there'll be some doctors that would say, well, why would you expose yourself to radiation if not necessary? However, because it's a low dose CT scan, I think you have to balance whether you want that in your life. But for me, I, I immediately wanted to sign up for that test. Because and how was your, what was your doctor's response? So it's interesting because she thought at first, because you're like 49 at this point? Yes, okay. 49, 50. It was right around my birthday. And she did not immediately dismiss me. She actually thought about it and she said, well, it's technically not a real screening test. And I said, well, why is that? She said, because we wouldn't give it to you on a regular basis like you do a mammogram because we wouldn't expose you to that much radiation on a regular basis, like an annual basis. And, and I said, well, let's do it biannually. And she said, well, even then, you know, cancer can develop within that time period. And I said, I would still rather know if I had lung cancer you know, sooner, because usually lung, a lot of the lung cancers, I shouldn't say all of them, but often some are very slow growing, like the one I had, which is one of the most popular lung cancers, uh, adenocarcinoma. It's usually a much slower growing lung cancer. So I probably had lung cancer for a couple of years with no symptoms whatsoever. So I said to her, I'd still rather take those statistics and get my CT scan. And I said, you know, it's the only known test that shows whether someone has lung cancer. So in my case, like, who and she's like, well, there's not a lot of genetic links to lung cancer, which it's true. It's not proven genetic links, but clearly in my case, I think mine was very genetic, even though they still can't prove that it was genetic. So I pushed for my CT scan and she said, well, why don't you just go downstairs today in her building? They have the x-ray office. She said, go down today and they'll give you a chest x-ray today. I mean, that you know, that doesn't happen in New York. Usually I have to set up another appointment and go. And I said, fine, I'll at least go get the chest x-ray. And I knew x-rays have a lot less um, uh, radiation. radiation. Yes. So I went downstairs and she called me, unlike... Again, I was very impressed with her because she called me within an hour. So I left her office, got, a, got an x-ray, chest x-ray, because she wanted it as like a baseline. And she said, let's just get a baseline chest x-ray. If there's anything on it, obviously, I'll, I'll let you know. 
And she called me and I said, she said, I see something on your chest X-ray, not probably the radiologist. And I don't like the way it looks. So I'm going to set up a meeting with you to have a meeting with the pulmonologist. And then also you're going to get your CT scan after all. So I said, well, where do I get the CT scan? How do I get it? So on and so forth. So another facility does the CT scans and I call them to set up the appointment. I get the appointment. And then I have something with the insurance company. They didn't want to pay for it. They needed 48 hours to pay for it. And I was just on the, on the phone with the insurance company. I said, no, you are paying for it and I'm going tomorrow. Like you need to figure it out. And sure enough, like my doctor talked to them, whatever happened, and I got the CT scan the next day. I was lucky though, because I've done a lot of, um, I've been involved with that Memorial Sloan Kettering that someone there who's a friend, it's a doctor, decided to look at my scans within a couple days. And she too also didn't like the way it looked. So I guess the way tumors look often, they use a term called speculated and it looks speculated. So what does that mean? I think it means spikes on the x-rays. Often it literally looks like something that is exploding in a way. So I had some sort of sense to be my biggest advocate. And I also had some sort of weird sixth sense that told me, that was giving me signals to go push to get that checked. And being that they don't know that much about lung cancer and their genetic links, I'm glad now I know this, which, but at the time I didn't, but I'm glad I said, you know, I don't care that my mom was a smoker. It, do you know, how do you know it couldn't be genetically linked? And sure enough, I, my mom died at 53. She, by the time she was diagnosed at 52, she was already stage four. Wow. So she only survived for 10 months. The chances are she probably had a similar cancer and she probably had it for a couple of years. So if you do the math, it's exactly the same timeline as I have. So I really feel like there has to be a genetic link. It just doesn't make any it's sense. It's not proven yet. That's not proven yet. Me. No. So my oncologist said, we will probably figure this out right. down the road that it was genetically linked, but we don't have it. We're not, it's not proven now. Well, there are a lot of things that are true and not yet proven. Right. What surprises me, which I only learned through you, is that lung cancer is the number one cause of cancer death in mm -hmm. the U.S. Men and women. Both men and women. I had no idea. No one knows because it's been stigmatized as a smoker's cancer. 60% of the people that are diagnosed with lung cancer no longer smoke or have never smoked. So if you combine... 20% have never smoked. And then if you combine the other 40%, it's people that maybe have smoked like me. I smoked in college 30 years ago. So it's people that technically have their lungs are supposedly reversed and cleaned. And, you know, you can reverse a lot of lung damage if you start smoking. Surgeon said to me, there's a, probably a good chance that it was triggered by our environment because living in New York, they have a much higher um, rate of lung cancer here than they do in like Utah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So From the air pollution? Air pollution, yes. So that they have proven. Mm -hmm. So there's a good chance of that. That's why I'm so thankful for you and helping me help clean my inner inside air of our apartment and adding the air filtration systems and just paying attention to the kind of air quality that I was breathing. Now, Walking down the street every day, I really can't get away from what we 
endure here, but indoor air pollution is so important because even just your bedroom, that's generally a third of your life. And I have my air filtration right next to me. So if I can help prevent it, and I'm doing a lot of things to try to help prevent a recurrence. I was lucky, as you know, I had stage 1B. So the mass was very small and it was in my lower um, right lung. So they were able to remove a lobe. I think it was my lower. Now I keep confusing if it was my upper. Anyways, it's a side that had three lobes. They were able to take one lobe out. It's called a lobectomy and they do it much more civilized now. They slice down your side and they kind of squeeze open your uh, ribs and they pull the lung out and this my surgeon was a big believer of like just let's get the part let's get the whole lobe because we're not sure if like in a complete sometimes people get a second section of their lobe taken out but they're not sure how much of that lobe actually regenerates and actually works Mm -hmm. because your lungs are have five different compartments and Mm -hmm. they can do a lot the other four so Mm -hmm. supposedly i have a little bit less capacity i have like 15 percent less capacity have you noticed it it's hard to say because i had to take a good time amount of time off of cardio exercise Mm -hmm. even though they don't really want you to but in your mind you go through a lot yeah so i just was very scared to first of all it hurts for the first month and then you're you're going through um, pretty intensive surgery. I didn't realize internal surgery takes so long to heal. Mm-hmm. It's not like I felt terrible after, I mean, for the first week, yes. And then after that, I was very tired, but it just takes your body a long time to heal internally. So you have no idea. So, so then, like how long did it, do you feel it? I mean, before you three, felt more back to normal. It took a while. Like it took at least three months before I kind of felt a big hump. You know, like it, it was almost like three months I was here or six months I was here. A year I felt tremendously different. Like now I feel almost myself, my old self, uh, but my cardio is still not great. Mm-hmm. In that, But it's just because I haven't been doing it regularly. I think I'm getting back into it now and doing it regularly. And um, so as long as I just keep up, I'll let you know in a few months mm-hmm. if I feel a lot different. I never was great at cardio though. So I always mm-hmm. had a little bit of asthma. And I was just never really strong at it. And I wonder if there's a correlation with, you know, I never had the strongest lungs in the world. So was there some correlation? Yeah. And there is a higher correlation with people that have asthma to lung cancer, a Mm -hmm. slightly higher correlation. But what's interesting to me is all the community of people I've met Mm -hmm. that of especially young women, for some reason on Instagram, I follow hashtag lung cancer or living with lung cancer, a bunch of different ones. And women are more, probably take up more social media anyways, have bigger social media presence. But I find all these young women with young children or no children that are being diagnosed with lung cancer in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s. And it's mind blowing to me. And they often talk about not being smokers because I think there's a real shock to people that they don't understand that everybody can get lung cancer. Anybody can get lung cancer. I met a woman at the walk in Brooklyn two weeks ago for lung cancer, 32 years old, doesn't run in her family. She's never smoked a day in her life. And she just was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. I wonder though, for every smoker, there are multiple people affected by the secondhand smoke. Right. Do you think 
and yeah. ask her if she was exposed to secondhand smoke. It could be. Well, I know when I was pregnant, when I have been pregnant walking down the sidewalks in Manhattan, I've been so angry that I don't have the right to fresh air without secondhand smoke. Right. Like I was so much more sensitive to all the smokers on the sidewalks. I hold my breath literally when I walk by now. I know. And I tell my children too also. Yeah. And when they cross behind a car that right. stopped. And even in this morning, we have a, we seem to walk every day and the street cleaners come by. And it literally is always on our side of the sidewalk and the street cleaners coming in and it's brushing up all that toxic stuff, whatever. Right. And Ray and I always hold our mouth and hold our okay. face because I'm, t I'm just so sensitive to everywhere now. If I'm behind a bus, have you I'm become more sensitive? Very, I've been. Is it psychological? Of course, and, yeah. yeah. So it's not like you feel it more in your life. No, no, it's psychological. I mean, or I'm trying to just be as healthy as possible yeah. and trying to avoid. I mean, part of me is like, should I have been wearing one of those masks around? But I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> if you do it, maybe I'll join you. Um, I, in, in thinking about today, was remembering more when I waitressed in college in a cafe that was considered so cool. It was very European, but there yes. was smoking right. in the cafes. And I remember there was a time where restaurants in New York had lots of indoor smoking. Right. And when I did move to LA for a period for like two years, one thing I loved so much about LA is that smoking indoors was banned. Right. I craved it so much that if I went to a restaurant, I didn't have to inhale smoke. Right. But because of your story, I've wondered, maybe I should get tested because I, I was it's actually so much secondhand. Smoke. Higher correlation to women with an Asian background. Interesting. They don't know why. And I, I think it's, I would assume, and I have to find out more about this, it's global. So I'm wondering if it's due to the, like pollution in China or right. specifically that region where there's a lot of air pollution. But they just said it's on the rise for young women and young women with Asian backgrounds. Cool. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Genetically. Yeah. Well, we all have unique vulnerabilities, both individually and also as men and women, children, because adults, of, right. and I'm sure ethnicities. Right. So, or where you live, probably. And where you live. Right. So, do you happen to know in terms of the radiation from this low-grade CT scan, does it, is it comparable to a mammogram? Do you know? I, that would be a great question. I can follow up with and find out. I can ask my doctor, too. I don't, but what was funny is when you're in the hospital and after you have your lobectomy, they check you so often for to see what, how much fluid you still have in your lungs. They need to make sure the fluid's leaving your body. So you get an x-ray either once or twice a day. I think I got a CT scan every couple days. I mean, the amount of radiation, especially the x-rays that they gave me, and I know x-rays don't have as much as CT scans, but I was in awe. I, I said, oh my God, I remember my practitioner saying, oh, we wouldn't want to expose you to all that radiation by me asking for one CT scan. Then when you're actually in the hospital, they're just using yeah. it like it's not, like it's nothing. And I said that to my surgeon. I'm like, I, I keep getting bombarded with radiation. And he said, oh, in the big scheme of things, yeah. that's not a big deal. Yeah. 
So he's like, by the time that catches up to you, you'll be old. Yeah. So I thought, okay, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who I believe here, but I thought it was interesting how they, in the big scheme of things, they just didn't think it was that important. So I have to find out more about that. Mm -hmm. And I have asked, I have brought that up to both doctors again, and they just kind of shrug it off and don't really have enough I think in general, doctors don't have enough information. I know one does. I don't really think anyone studies it because there are certain situations in an emergency when you're trying to save a life, prolong a life, right? you just need to get the imaging done. Right. And so no one really studies where the long-term effects, right. and it's complex because you're so healthy in every other aspect. Right. It's just impossible to really study human beings and how this will affect them. Affect them. There are so many variables. Right. What have you learned that you wish you knew sooner about the things you can control, like the environmental or lifestyle factors you can control. I mean, you, we all know about smoking now and right. secondhand smoke, but did you, were you surprised to learn? Like, I know we talked about indoor air generally being two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. That was shocking to me when you told me that. And I know you had, I think there, it was in your book. I know I had heard it before from you, but I just didn't, like it just didn't register. And when you told me that after I got out of the hospital, I was very panicked. I was thinking, oh my God, in my own home, I'm breathing in toxic air. And I had no idea my kids are breathing it in, which was really heartbreaking. So I remember constantly, and we do this now every day, we try to open windows every day in the house and get fresh air. And I got everybody on board with that. Like my kids are opening their windows. So everyone's getting some fresh air in the house. The cleaning supplies too, for me, was pretty interesting. Now I had transitioned on some things just because you see the name organic and less, less toxic and you immediately like gravitate to the labeling. But I didn't really know that there was a service out there like ewg.org where you can log in your actual cleaning product and it gets a rating and it tells you what products, what, what the hazard made. score. Yeah. And what it's made out of and like what causes this thing is proven to cause cancer and this ingredient is proven to be a, an, what is it? Endocrine disruptor. Endocrine disruptor. Yeah. And, and carcinogens and neurotoxins and reproductive. I mean, it's, it's but sobering. they actually explain it all, which right. is fascinating. It's not just a generic grade. It's fascinating how they explain it all. So that to me was, I mean, I spent, I remember two days just on that website going through all our cleaning supplies and then your advice, some, some of them that you had already done all the legwork on, but you also, I know, do more of a really clean cleaning product with your vinegar and yes. Yes, which I haven't transitioned to completely yet, but I will. It took many years to get to right. the point where I we create our own cleaning recipes. Right, that I want to do next. It took many years. Right, that I want to do next, but we change our dishwashing detergent, the stuff we wash our clothes with, I mean everything. What was your emotional I stopped using candles. Great. Yeah. And do you vent <laughs> I love to. Well, you know, even just cutting down on how often yes. you use it is good. And if you are going to use it for like a dinner party or Thanksgiving dinner, just make if sure it makes you that things. happy, you can do it and then just air out the home, right. crack open your windows. So, And I don't even think there are any candles that are really good to breathe in. Well, 
anytime you burn something, you're creating other fumes or small particles. Okay. So it's always a risk. But in general, the healthier candles are 100% beeswax. And right. The wick is organic cotton. Right. That's the best option, but it's okay. probably better to not burn anything. Right. But of course, sometimes for a special occasion, you'll burn them. My husband still burns them sometimes right. when they air out the home after. Right. It's hard when you start to concentrate on all of this. But I think one of the most important things people have to remember is if you're not breathing in oxygen, you probably shouldn't be breathing it in. The, the doctor actually talked about, we talked about this like because I was concerned with the whole vaping epidemic, having a 15 year old and going, he started high school last year and his reaction to coming back home after a couple days of school. And he said, Oh my God, mom, everybody is vaping. And it was, I think part of the rite of passage of these kids, like smoking ones for us mm -hmm. to show that they are cool. Right. And he said, you know, oh, well, and I explained to him, anything that you put into your lungs is bad. And we, you know, they have some sort of, they think they have some sort of knowledge about vaping and how it's not unhealthy for you. And it's not a cigarette and it's all, and I said, it's chemicals. You're breathing in chemicals that are not supposed to be in your lungs. Yeah. As my doctor said, unless it's oxygen, it's going to cause problems. And now, sure enough, now it's all over the news, the problems it's causing, which is, it is really unbelievable that people don't realize that you're not, if you're not inhaling oxygen, you're doing damage to your lungs. Mm -hmm. So, and that, I mean, your lungs are such a vital part of your survival. It's interesting to me that studies on heavy cigarette smokers find that like 24% of male heavy smokers die of lung cancer. And for women, it's about 18%. And heavy smokers is defined as 25 cigarettes a day. A pack a day, yeah. yeah. Is that a pack? Is it a pack 20? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I think it was 20. I don't know. I don't remember. But when I read that, I thought, wow, that's kind of low. And of course, heavy smokers get other things. It's right. not necessarily lung cancer. Right. But I was just surprised because I know there have been, what is it? It's like 600 ingredients in cigarettes. Mm -hmm. When you burn it, it creates 7,000. Oh. And 69 right. to 70 are known to cause cancer. So inhaling these carcinogens, only 24% of men and 18% of women Yep. Die of lung cancer. So that's so interesting to me because I think, well, what about the people who didn't get sick? Mm -hmm. What are they doing? Right. Well, I think that was also, I remember my mom always saying that, oh, I, I have, because we used to bug her as a kids, mom, you have to quit smoking. She had a really bad cough all the time. Did said, she smoke at home? Yes. In the car at home. I said to her, you know, we, she had this really bad cough. And they said, you're either going to die of cancer or you're going to die of emphysema. And she would come back with, oh, my grandfather, my this person, you know, family members, they smoked until they were 90 and never got cancer. And back then, the marketing from these cigarette companies were saying it's not bad for you, which we all know they had to pay deeply for. But so she really believed that there were plenty of people that didn't get lung cancer. So it wasn't necessarily correlated. 
I mean, I think people think lung cancer is really a smoker's disease. And based on the statistics I'm starting to see and learn and the people that I'm meeting, people just don't understand that it's not just a smoker's disease. Mm -hmm. It's really affecting anybody who has lungs. Again, all these people I follow on Instagram now that I've become friends with, it's just unbelievable. They're young, never smoked, and had no symptoms. Often they go in, the woman, um, Kitty that I met, this summer, she went in because she was having shoulder pain, and she knew to go in because her sister had lung cancer and died of it, her oldest sister. But her parents had, I think, four or five kids, and her oldest sister was much older than her. So she didn't really, back then, they didn't talk too much about what the lung cancer was. So she didn't know exactly what had happened. Eventually, it moved into her bones, and she ended up metastasizing and passing away from that. Was it related to her shoulder pain? It was. So when she went in to ask about her shoulder pain, she just knew in the back of her head, I better just get this checked out. My sister had lung cancer. And sure enough, she had early stage two. She had stage one lung cancer. So her story is almost exactly like mine. She had some inkling of a feeling. She went in and she, and she had a much even less aggressive surgery than I did. They just did a, like a segment. They took a segment, they took the tumor out and took a segment and she's doing great. But she came and did the lung cancer walk with me this summer. She lives in California and she came out to New York and did that. Most people don't find it until stage four. And that's often when it metastasizes and they feel it in a different area. So I talked to someone this week um, that I met through, actually through a parent at school. And she said she was having hip pain. She also never smoked. She is probably in her early 50s and she was having hip pain. And when they found it, she had lung cancer metastasized all over. She lived above a dry cleaner in her building who was not venting properly for years. They eventually kicked the dry cleaner out, but they found out later it was all coming through the vents in the the building. So she really believes hers was caused by, and she actually named the chemical and what it was. Yeah. Yeah. There's people that are getting diagnosed with certain gene mutations of lung cancer. They have, I know two that are the major ones that they've been able to um, pull out and learn more about. I think there's other ones that they're working on, or maybe there are more, but one's called ALK and the other one's called EGFR. And there's actually targeted therapies for those people that have those lung cancers, they take a drug. It's not a chemotherapy. It's not an immunotherapy. It's a targeted therapy where they actually take medicine that suppresses the cancer. Mm. So people are living with stage four cancer now, That's lung great. cancer, which is amazing. It doesn't cure it. It suppresses it. So the way I was explained, it, it works almost like an antibiotic. Sometimes the antibiotic can work for a very long time. People have been on some of these drugs for six plus years. Mm-hmm. And it's because they're fairly new, they don't know how long that they'll work. Often, sometimes they'll stop working, almost like an antibiotic can, because the, can- the cancer mm-hmm. can outsmart it mm-hmm. and mutate differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's other drugs that you can kind of complement with the first drug. And often, like people will do a, a series of different drugs and sometimes even come back to the original drug. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of new things happening, like more drugs have been approved in lung cancer over the last three years than had been in the last 20. So are treatments and science advancing pretty Huge, huge. It's like, the I don't know, finally people are realizing, oh, it's the number one cancer. Let's put our energies towards curing so this cancer. it's more than like breast cancer, 
Which mm-hmm. others? Prostate, um, ovarian, um, uterine combined. So it, there's more cancer. So uh, there more, more lung cancer related uh, cases than all those combined. So is there more research dollars going into lung no, cancer? It's one of the most underfunded. Because no one really talks about it. And they, they don't get the government support that like breast cancer gets. Now, I, I really feel like it's going to change. I mean, we are working, you know, as you know, I joined an organization called the Lung Cancer Research Foundation, and it's a national organization solely funding, 100% funding research. So no, not a lot of patient outreach, not a lot of um, public service announcements, things like you'll see with like other organizations. Ours is truly to try to find a cure. We're getting much more people interested in participating in those kind of charities. And also we're finding drug companies want to work with us. Great. Because they want to, to see the research being done also because it helps them actually in their research. That's great. Yeah, so that's been great. Um, like we partnered with Pfizer on something. Um, so it's it's moving towards that direction, but it's still super underfunded. Mm-hmm. But it's getting, there. it's getting there. And so why don't you talk about the luncheon you have coming up and how people can contribute? Okay, well, Lung Cancer Research Foundation is a national organization. We merge with another charity called Free to Breathe. There's a couple ways that we fundraise. Often they're done with walks all over the country. And they're called, sometimes they're called Strides for Life. Sometimes they're called Free to Breathe. But we just had one in Philadelphia this past Sunday. We had one in Brooklyn two weeks before that. We had one in New York over the summer in the Hamptons in the summer. I'm trying to remember where the next one is. Oh, the Chicago one a month ago. So where can someone learn more about when they... So they can go to lungcancerresearchfoundation.org or we actually have a new IRL, which is ifyouhavelungs.org, which I love that one because it's true. You can create your own event, which is pretty exciting. So say you live in San Francisco and you really want to do a walk there because there's someone that you care about that has been, been affected by lung cancer, or you think it's something that's underfunded, you could start your own walk, you can do a yoga event. It's very grassroots in that way. And again, 100% of the money goes to research, and then they have we have a scientific board that decides based on the grants that they have applications for. So for instance, I think we get about 300 grant applications a year, and I think there's about 125 of them that gets immediately narrowed down to. And I would say 30 of them a year we would love to fund, maybe even 50. I mean, they are really good uh, research applications. However, we only have the ability to fund no more than 10 a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, this year we're actually even funding a little bit less. I think we're doing nine maybe. And it's it's so frustrating to me because when I hear the head of the scientific board talk about the really amazing opportunities to see things move faster in this whole sector and try to find a cure for lung cancer when you see all these people have ideas and they can't do it because they can't afford to do the research. They have their medical school bills to pay and they can't work because often the places that they work can't fully fund them, so they need these grants to be funded. Mm-hmm. It's frustrating, but... We're getting there, as we said. So we have a big luncheon that we do annually as a fundraising event. But what I love about it, which you're going to come to, yeah. it's on November 12th um, in New York City. At, it's um, being held at the Pierre, and it's really research-focused. So we actually bring researchers in, people that were past grantees, 
that often talk about what they have learned about lung cancer. Our chair of our board is um, a really amazing thoracic surgeon at Weill Cornell. His dad passed away from lung cancer. So he, that was, I think, what got him into the field, actually. He wanted to, he was so passionate about making a difference. That's um, where we're going to do a lot of fundraising that day. And I'm actually speaking at the event, which I'm kind of terrified about. But Are you getting more comfortable? I just will tell my story, yeah. you know, and I think people will be interested in that. I definitely feel very lucky to have removed the cancer out of my body and be able to talk about it in such a positive way. I think it would be hard to talk about it if I was still fighting the battle. Yeah, I think it's a little bit easier for me to talk about now because I feel like it's a little bit more, even though I have to have scans every six months and we'll have to have a scan for the rest of my life regularly. Um, I think it moves to out to a year and a couple years, but I do feel in my mind that it's in the past and I'm doing something else. And this is, I'm doing something for the future of lung cancer that has nothing to do with me. So I've kind of removed mm -hmm. myself from feeling like a patient. Well, you're such a gift to not just those affected by lung cancer, but to everyone. Because as you said, if you have lungs, right, you are at risk. And for you to bring awareness to such a prevalent issue that most people, it was not on my radar mm -hmm. and I am very health conscious. So right. what you're doing is so wonderful. Even if I can help one person, whether it's finding, having access to the right doctor or getting a second opinion, or I don't know, learning more about how they can help the future of lung cancer, whatever it is. I've talked to people about what to expect during surgery. So anything that I can do to help is, for me, I really want to put myself out there to be that advocate for people. Well, because of you, I'm definitely going to talk to my doctor during my next visit about the, about your story mm -hmm. and the fact that I waitressed yeah. in a smoke-infused right. cafe during college. So I think if anyone listening has been around a lot of secondhand smoke or it's just important. environments that had lots of fumes... Right. To just talk to your doctor about whether it would make sense for Definitely, you to get tested. Like dry cleaners. I think of all the people at, from 9-11 and their exposure to the toxins that they were exposed to. And often a lot of those um, for, first responders have yeah. contracted lung cancer. So that was a definite correlation. So thank God we have a lot of funding that's being given to those people. But there is this area called fetal origins. It's not that studied. It's The idea has been around for a few decades, but I don't think there's a lot of funding in the area. But increasingly, scientists are studying whether genetic predispositions or adult onset diseases have fetal origins. Right. So if you have a parent that was a smoker or a parent that lived around secondhand smoke, then you maybe would be more likely you, they did you might test, have higher risk. I know they tested when I did the genetic. I did genetic testing after. They genetically tested the tumor, and I did have a gene mutation in EGFR. And they can tell from the gene mutation if it was from your original gene or if it was contracted later. So that it must be similar to what you're saying. And mine was not from my original gene, like my original DNA, and as a, you know, whatever, you know, when you're so you growing, mean, you're like doubling, doubling, doubling. So they can tell if it came it's from like, like an epigenetic where like an environmental influence 
it was an, it was an environment, it changed it. Yeah. So they know they could tell that from the gene, um, testing. genetic testing. Yes. So and that was the big unveil to tell me that it, okay, it wasn't from your childhood. It was from mm -hmm. something environmental that happened or something triggered your mm -hmm. gene mm -hmm. mutated. That's how I understand. But people live with gene mutations in their body. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily. You won't die from it. Right. So that's right. I don't know which some are bad and some are good. Right. Right. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Podcast show notes can be found at my website at nontoxicliving.tips. To more easily listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the Practical Non-Toxic Living podcast. And if you'd like to support it, then please like it and share it. Until next time.